0: Well, you can open up your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4. If you're new with us, this is what we do. We walk through books of the Bible, uh, line by line, verse by verse, word by word. Uh, this is a deep conviction in our church, and let me tell you why we do this. It's going to kind of lead into First Peter chapter 4 here. Um, when we made a decision to do what people call, it doesn't matter if you know this phrase or not, what people call expository preaching, where you walk through books of the Bible, I knew it was a good idea for a couple reasons. I I thought, well, this will be a good idea. It'll keep me away from my passion projects, my hobby horses, from me getting up and just getting passionate about something and teaching on it all the time. That's why expository preaching is good. I thought, here's another good reason. I'm going to learn a lot of things. I'm going to constantly have to be studying new texts. And I thought, well, this will be really good because if I ever have to teach on anything difficult, which happens a lot, um, but if I ever have to teach on uh, divorce and remarriage or or money or gender, sexuality, whatever it is, nobody's going to go, oh, I know why he's teaching on this, you know? (laughs) Teach it on money. Church must be having a hard time with money. That's why it's, it's like, no, no, we're talking about this because it's the next thing that shows up in the book of Matthew or whatever we're going through. But what I didn't know and why, why I'm telling you this, that the number one thing that I personally, your pastor, after three years of doing this, the, the biggest takeaway I have uh, from doing expositional preaching is how much I end up talking about suffering. It's like every series I'm in, there's like several sermons on suffering. And I never plan it that way. We're in the book of Judges and it's a lot about suffering. Uh, you were with me, last if you were with us last year, we were in the book of Philippians over the summer, lots about suffering. We were, we've been in the book of Genesis, we've been in the book of Colossians, we spent a, a couple months in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and again and again, this topic of suffering comes up, and so it's a very, very important topic. And, and here's the big idea uh, in, in 1 Peter for today, because Peter talks a lot about suffering, by the way. Peter talks more, there's more about suffering in the book of 1 Peter than in any other New Testament book when it comes to just the topic of suffering. Uh, 25% of all that, the Bi- all that the New Testament teaches on the topic of suffering is found in First Peter. And so again and again and again, this topic comes up, and, and here's why he does it. Let me just give you a little background. Peter is writing to a people uh, while Nero is ruling. And what was happening during that period of time is the persecution was getting worse because what Nero did was he burned down parts of the city that he didn't like because he wanted to rebuild them. So he burns down the city, but then everyone gets mad because they lose their businesses, they lose their jobs. So he blames the Christians because they were an easy target. They were a minority. He blames the Christians for that, for for burning down the city. So guess what happens? Everyone gets mad at the Christians. And then he punishes the Christians. And he says, what I'm going to do is he he would actually dip live Christians in wax and light them on fire and they would light, light up his gardens at night. So it's that kind of intensity of suffering that Peter, and it's like people that Peter's writing this book to, they have friends and family who've gone through this. And so it's in that context that here is the big uh, idea for the sermon day, that this place is not our home, but it is a place to expect and endure suffering. That there, you, you cannot deny suffering. Although Christian science tries to do that and Hinduism tries to do that, certain forms of Hinduism, you can't deny it. You can't direct yourself around it your whole life, and you really should not despair when you're going through it. But it's a part of our life, and what I want to do is I want to read you slowly from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. And as I do, what you're going to see is for some of you, this sermon's for today. You're like, I'm going through a trial. I'm going through a test. I've just had a tragedy. This this is for you today. For many of us in a church our size, in a church of our demographic, where there's lots of young people, lots of young families, this is a sermon for I'm not a prophet, so I don't know exactly, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a son of a prophet, I do work for a nonprofit, okay, um, but, 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 so I don't know, I'm not prophesying to you, I'm just saying, um, this is maybe for some of you a sermon for next month, or next year, or next decade, but I want to read this to you, this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, it says this, beloved, do not be surprised, we'll spend a lot of time on that today, Don't be surprised when suffering comes into your life. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, fire is connected to suffering. Why? Because uh, fire has two things that are connected to it, pain and purification. Suffering is always painful, but you can make it purifying. Or you can make it worse. We'll talk about that. We all know people who the way they respond to their suffering, they make everything worse. At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, there's one of the purposes of suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. The Bible is a strange book. If we're just honest, we read those verses and we make you know, listening noises and prayer noises and we act like that's easy. It's like, no, 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 no. We all read that and go, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very hard. Rejoice. He says it three times. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad. Three different times he says it. When his glory is revealed. Verse 14 hits us right where we are as a a culture right now, as a society, as a nation. If you are insulted, some Christians have have physical attacks. Every Christian is going to have verbal attacks. So he spends some time here. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Now, I don't feel blessed when I'm suffering, which must mean that blessed doesn't mean my my life is easy and I'm healthy and wealthy and wise. That that, that must not mean what blessed means. Because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you, verse 15, but, none of, not, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, verse 16, and if anyone suffers as a Christian, now that's one of only three places in all the New Testament where the word Christian is used. By the way, because Christian was a derogatory term used to, uh, to talk about and name and pick on Christ's followers. That's what, there was a word that meant Caesar follower. They just took Caesar out. They put Christ in. That's where we get the word Christian. Christians would later wear it as a badge of honor. But it was a derogatory term toward them. By the way, that's exactly what happened with Baptists. That's what happened with, because they baptized believers. That's what happened with Methodists, because they had all these methods. That's what happened with the Puritans, because they were all pure. They, these, these titles were initially given to critique them, and then they wore them, and they said, that's, We're trying to follow Christ. Fine, call us that. So suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, verse 17, for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, saved through difficulty, saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then he summarizes it all in 19, therefore... Therefore, in light of everything I've said, let those who suffer according to God's will, that's the idea again of it's a test, God's designing it, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. One of my jobs as one of the pastors here is to help you, to help the church walk through sin and suffering. Some of you were here on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, we had a a special member gathering where we installed and affirmed six new men to be elders in this church, bringing it to a total of eight elders. And Pastor Dave and I are like, praise the Lord, okay? Because there is a lot of sin and there is a lot of suffering that we are walking through and have walked through as a church. We are a not quite three-year-old church, and yes, we've had a suicide in our church. We've had marriages that have fallen apart. We've had uh, difficult illness and injury come to both adults and children in our church. We have had people lose their jobs and lose their careers and find themselves at great financial loss. We've had people deeply struggle with mental illness, depression, and anxiety. And see, the thing about Christians is Christians are not the exception to suffering. What often happens is when you become a Christian, this is what we need to be honest about, and this is a sobering sermon today, but what we need to be honest about is as Christians, we often invite more suffering into our lives, because there's three types of suffering that's unique to Christians. Here's one, self-denial. If you're going to be serious about saying no to the sin in your life, guess what you're inviting into your life? Suffering. There's the unique suffering of being a Christian, and now the demonic is against you. The demonic is not against the non-Christians. So that's the second type of suffering. There's the, the unique suffering of being persecuted for being a Christian. So those are three different types of suffering, but here's what's, here's what's so important. This, is, this hopefully will encourage you, that there are two great apologetics for the Christian faith. In other words, defenses of why Christianity is true. There's two of them. At the end of the day, if you could sum it up, you'd go, what are the two great defenses for Christianity? One is the historicity of the death and resurrection of Christ. Anytime you read an apologetics book, anytime you go to an Easter service, uh, anytime you get one chance to defend the faith, uh, most people are going to talk about how Christ rose from the dead. But do you you want to know what the number two best defense for Christianity is? People's willingness to suffer for it. If you go... How did we get from 12 disciples to 1 billion people who profess faith in Christ? It's one word, suffering. If you say, how did the gospel ever break through to X, whatever it is, a college campus or a closed country, how did the gospel break through? I'll tell you, suffering. A willingness to suffer for Christ because you love him and you believe the gospel and you love the people that are persecuting you. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to see how Peter writes to a people that are suffering much more, most likely, than all of us, than any of us. And I want, to see, I want you to see again slowly, with the time we have left, how he encourages them, how he challenges them, how he comforts them. And let's go back to verse 12, and I'll show you exactly how he does this. Look at verse 12. One word, first word, most, maybe most important word in this whole passage, beloved. When you are suffering, you need to know one thing at least, God loves you. Because when you get the cancer diagnosis, when you find out somebody that you know and love has passed away, when you are struggling emotionally or financially or relationally, what can often happen is in that moment, you can think, God doesn't love me. And here's what else is hard, if you start thinking about yourself, you're gonna realize you're not a very lovable person. You're you're gonna be very aware of your own sin. You're gonna be very aware of your own faults. You're gonna be very aware of your own failures. The more introspective you become, the more you'll realize, including myself, you're not very lovable. Well, thank God God doesn't love us because we're lovable. This is what makes Christianity so unique It's so powerful. It's that God loves me because of what Christ has done. See, there's a difference between religion and the gospel, and I want to talk about this for a second, and I'm using religion in a wooden word, Um, but a lot of people relate to God based on religion. Religion is, if I do these things, God will love me and God will make my life go well. That's religion. That's a contractional relationship with God. You know, if I tithe, I'll never have financial problems. And you don't even know that you have these kind of mindsets, right, in your your life until something doesn't happen well. You know, your boyfriend breaks your heart or something happens and, and you go, or somebody close to you dies and you, you, you say something to God like this, but God, haven't I? Haven't I always done this? Haven't I been super faithful? I'm in a community group. I'm serving. I'm trying to share Christ. What you're saying is, God, we have this relationship where I do things and then you reward me. That's, that's religion and that's, relation, that's not relational thinking. The, the gospel says, wait a second, God, in Christ, has suffered the punishment for my sins, and so anything bad that ever happens to me, that I would call bad, has been father-filtered from God, and God is not punishing me, he's only purifying me. That's a powerful perspective to have. That God is not against me, God is for me. That God is for my good, but God might not be about me feeling good. We often think, you know, if God loved me, if I was really beloved by God, he would do everything so I feel good. And, and, and that would mean that I'm healthy and that I'm wealthy and that my life's easy and all my relationships, you know, go well. It's like, if that happened in your life, you'd probably be a terrible person. There'd be no calling you up. There'd be no sanctification in your life. There'd be no change needing to happen. And so he says, I want you to understand that you are loved by God. And then he's going to tell us four truths. And I'm going to give these to you. Four truths that you need to know now. You need to know them. I said this before, but you need to know these truths before suffering happens. I had a biblical counseling professor, he said, if you have a book on suffering, he said, and somebody's deeply going through a suffering in their life, the best thing you can do with that book is light it on fire and warm them with it. It, it, The whole idea is, is when you're in it, it's just, it's so emotional, you're so overwhelmed, you need to know these kind of things first. So let me give you the four truths that Peter tells us, starting again in verse 12. Here's the first main idea. You cannot protect yourself from suffering, but you can prepare for it. And as soon as I say that, you know that's true. Like There's a part of you that goes, yeah. I know I can't ultimately, there's not a password or a pill that I can take. We, We tend to think somehow, we have this idea, safety is this massive illusion in our life. That if we wear our seat belts, and we have our alarm systems, and we live in a city with a good hospital, and we put our money in the right stock market, mutual funds, we can't lose. That nothing bad will ever happen to us. And it's like, think about this, go ahead and try to protect yourself from ever being betrayed. Go ahead and try to protect yourself from somebody you love dying. It's like you begin to think about these things, you go, I, It's, 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 here's what Tim Keller says, and I recommend his, he's got a great book on suffering. You can Google it later, but in his book on suffering, he says what happens is when suffering comes into your life, you have this reality. He says, he said, this is how he says it, he goes, you realize this, I'm not in control, and I never really was in control. And, and suffering kind of brings that reality into your life. So I want you to see, this arises out of scripture, I wanna see this first point. You cannot protect yourself from suffering, but you can prepare for it. I want you to see it right out of verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. He can't say it anymore directly. Christians, of all people, we should not be surprised when we suffer. We have a suffering God. We sing songs about a suffering Savior. If you know church history, the church has always suffered. Then he says this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And then he wants to say it one more time in case you don't get it. As though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, guys, look, Christians are the people who know that evil exists. Like, good and evil are, are some of the main realities of our life. Genesis 1-3 through 3 tells us there's three main realities to life. There's God and creation. There's creator creation. There's order and chaos, and there's good and evil, and that's your whole life. Your whole life is dealing with creation and God, trying to turn chaos into order while you deal with good and evil. That's your life. Welcome to the next 70 years of your life. And so we, we should understand that there's natural evil that's tornadoes and volcanoes and and the the curse of the world, Paul calls it, the Bible is groaning in the pains of childbirth. There's moral evil. That's when people sin against you and you sin against yourself. But more than that, he said, we we should understand there's suffering. Now, we tend to think suffering, suffering are happens to other people, not us. Let, let, me, let me tell you a, a story. The, uh, those of us in here who are old enough, we remember 9-11, where we were on 9-11. I can remember where I was. And, and you know, a- after 9-11, there were so many different stories that came out. People who, you know, experienced different things on 9-11 and um, survivors and first responders. And well, there was this lady and she tells the story of her husband calling her from flight 93. Flight 93 was one of the flights that went down and she said her husband calls her, and you know, of course, she doesn't know anything's going on, and she gets the phone call, and he says, I'm on this plane, and it's been hijacked by terrorists, and they've already killed one person, and I don't know what's going to happen, but this is, does not look good. I may never see you again. I love you. And she says something, she, as she was recounting this story and telling the people how it felt, she says something that I think we've all felt. She says, when my husband was telling me that he was on the plane that the terrorists took down, she said, I kept having this one thought, Things like this don't happen to people like us. That's how we think a lot of it. Let me tell you the people who suffer. People who suffer are people who aren't careful and don't take precautions and don't have as much money and aren't as well-educated. That's who suffers. Other people die of cancer. Other people get in car crashes. Other people have people who have suicide in their family. Other people struggle with mental illness. And we play the statistics game. Have you ever done that? Well, what are the statistics of getting cancer? Do, 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 do. You know, you look it up. Okay, good, thank goodness, not me. You know, you get on a plane, you're afraid the plane's gonna crash. Well, how many planes crash? Okay, no, planes never crash, great. You play the statistic game. The problem is if you play out the statistic game on everything that could possibly happen, the chance that it will happen to you is 100%. It's just a humbling reality. There, there's a couple things you have to, so, you know, these, it's a sobering thought because there's a couple of things that it's good for us to think about. and be, So let me say it this way. Why does the Bible warn us of suffering. Because when, when you're warned of something, you're still going to be scared when it happens, but you'll be less scared and you'll be like more comforted. So here's an example. My wife is, loves Disney World. And she wanted to take our five-year-old and our seven-year-old down there, and she did um, earlier this summer. And, uh, and, and she really wanted them to ride all the rides. And so they're all scared to ride the rides. So guess what she did? She took them and she showed them on YouTube every one of the rides that we were going to ride. And she said, now this is the big hill that you'll go down and then you'll go back through a cave, and then this will come out at you, and then this, you know. And, 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 and so the kids are watching it, and you're just watching them. They're, they're, they're amazed, and they are going, okay, I know what's going to happen. Now, did they still scream? Yes. We still have pictures of it. Yes. But they were less scared than they would have been, and they were willing to do it. This is what God warns us so that we know. I mean, So here's a couple of realities that you know, maybe you haven't articulated it outside, out loud, and, it's kind of, and maybe when I say it, you're gonna go, that's kind of depressing, but we just all know these things. So here's one. Everybody you know and love will die. So that's something you can't escape. Everybody. Every single person that you know and you love will die. And if, and if, and if you don't watch them die, then they'll watch you die. And you'll say bye to them. When you die, most likely it's not going to be an easy death. I know we all dream that we fall asleep with the Bible on our chest sleeping, right? (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? But as R.C. Sproul said, R.C. Sproul said, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. All of us, or most of us, we will end up getting old and there will be many complications. The book... The book of Ecclesiastes, 1 Corinthians 15, talks a lot about the body falling apart as you get older, and there's a suffering in that. Everything in your life will most likely be much harder than you think it will be. Marriage will be more difficult, making enough money will be more difficult, parenting will be more difficult. And so Peter's trying to get us ready. And he's saying, here's the big thing, guys, you can't make yourself safe, so the only other option is to make yourself strong. Well, how do you make yourself strong? You know God's word deeply. You know the character and the nature of God. You know that you're beloved and blessed. We'll get to blessed in a little bit, but you need to know the character of God. You need to not be surprised when suffering comes into your life. It's the same situation that, you, you know, went, like I gave you the illustration of my wife telling the kids about a ride. Were they still scared? Yeah, but then they go, oh, mom told me about this. It is scary, but mom told me, and I'm okay. It's the same kind of idea here. You, uh, there's a college professor I, I deeply respect, and One of the things he says when it comes to suffering is, and think about this, this may not work for you, but he said, Here's a good goal in life. A good goal in life would be to be the strongest person at your dad's funeral. Some of you have already lost your dad, but that's something that most likely is going to happen to every person. And one of the greatest things you could do, he said, What kind of person would you need to be to be the strongest person at your dad's funeral? That doesn't mean you're not crying, that doesn't mean you're not weeping, that doesn't mean you're not sad. It's that you're the kind of person at your dad's funeral who can help other people. Who can grieve but also lead. So that's the first thing he says. We need to be the type of people who are prepared to suffer. Here's the second thing he says. He says, you cannot choose your suffering, but you can choose your response. You cannot choose your suffering, but you can choose your response. Now, as Americans, we love choice. We get to, I don't know if you've thought about this much, we get to choose things past generations couldn't even imagine. So the fact that you get to choose your career or job, that's only a couple hundred years old. For most of human history, you did what your dad did or what your mom did. The fact that you can choose where you're gonna live and maybe live in, I don't know, six or eight different places in the United States, that didn't happen. You lived in your two mile radius village and you walked everywhere until a couple hundred years ago. The fact that you can choose your spouse, that's new. Arranged marriages were what happened, again, until about two or 300 years ago. You can choose the temperature in your room. Isn't that amazing? Some of you, that's the biggest fight you have with your spouse or your roommate. You know, 72 degrees, no, 68 degrees, right? It's like we, we live in such an amazing, it's really an amazing world. We live in an amazing world of choice. You can choose where you want to go in your car while choosing the, what you want to listen to on your phone while choosing who you would like to call anywhere in the world. We love choice. But here's what we know, that we we think we have all these choices, but then you realize, wait a second, some of the most important things about me I didn't get to choose. You didn't get to choose who your parents would be. You didn't get to choose how healthy you'd be. You didn't get to choose your socioeconomic status or where in the world you'd be born. In the same way, what he's saying is, you can't choose your suffering. It's going to come to you. You don't know what's ahead. I don't know what's ahead for you guys. But he's saying you can choose. You can't choose what's going to happen externally. You can choose how you're going to respond internally. And look what he says. This is verse 13. Verse 13 says this, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He tells you to rejoice for two reasons. In verse 12, he tells you to rejoice because it's a test. What he's saying is that what happens in suffering is that God is testing you, not tempting you. God is testing you not because he needs to see what's in you. He knows what's in you. God's testing you so that you can see what's in you. See, what happens in suffering is is suffering keeps nobody neutral. In my, you know, whatever it is now, 18 years of being a Christian, I have seen both sides. I have seen people who tell me the number one reason they're not a Christian is suffering. They'll tell me something that happened. They'll tell me, you know, they prayed for something, it didn't happen. Their dad died, their kid died, their friend died, and they can't believe in God. But in my, this is subjective, in my limited experience, I have met more people whose sufferings what brought them to Christ. I know a lady, and they had a very, very premature baby, and that woke her up. She, the baby lived, but she was very, very concerned, and that led her to Christ. I've seen people, I saw a guy just in the last few months, his marriage was falling apart, that led him to Christ. The Puritans would say the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. That what happens is that the sun being the hardships of our lives, it comes into our lives and it begins to reveal things. Now, how do, you know, it, the Bible's strange because it tells us to rejoice. How do most people respond to suffering? I'll tell you, most people respond to suffering by either responding sinfully or by running to sin. Right? Running to sin is I'm going to self-medicate and, Look at pornography and drink too much and be a workaholic and travel a ton and stay busy and ignore it. That's running to sin. Uh, Responding sinfully is I'm I'm gonna complain and I'm going to be bitter toward that person and I'm going to resent them. One of the worst things that you can do when you're suffering is compare your life to other people who you don't think are suffering as bad as you and play the victim card. That is one of the, first of all, nobody wins in that game, everybody loses. The game of who's suffering more is a loser's game. You don't wanna play that game. But here's another thing about it. When you don't know what's really going on in other people's lives, when people go, that person's not suffering, I know what they mean. They mean they're wealthy and healthy. That's what, that person's not suffering, it means they have enough money and they look healthy. It's like, well, how's their relationship with their family? How's their relationship with their spouse? There's, there's a lot of other things going on. I'll give you a story. I was, had an opportunity recently to play golf. And I was playing in a foursome, and I knew the one guy. I didn't know the other two guys. One of the guys in the, go- in the foursome was very impressive. Nice dressing. I find out he's very, basically independently wealthy. He golfs every day. I oh, thought, that's nice. Then I, then I found out he's also very good at tennis. Then, then I find out that, um, um, he, oh, then we start playing, and I find out he's a two-handicap. If you don't know really golf, it's like a really good golfer. So I thinking about this, and, and I don't get to really start talking to him because I didn't know him well. I didn't get to really know him until about second, uh, probably ninth or 10th hole. I asked him a question. I said, hey, tell me a little about your family. You got any kids? And he opens up and he says, I I have two kids, but one of them, uh, my son uh, died unexpectedly three years ago. And he began to just tell me just a little bit about that. And just, and I I just realized, here I am. I, I see one level of analysis in this guy's life. I'm seeing how good he is at golf and that he doesn't need to work. And I think, oh, his life must be easy. And that, that's, what, that's the danger in all of our lives. We have no idea. What I found is even in people's lives where there's very little suffering, they're usually connected to, you don't have to go far to find a friend or a family member that's suffering deeply. And so he's telling us to rejoice. He says this, in verse 13, look at that verse. He says, rejoice because you share in Christ's sufferings. And what does that mean? That means, and I'll give you an illustration for this, that means that the, when you suffer like Christ suffered, you'll know him more deeply. There's a guy named Bill Bright. You may have heard of him. He was one of the great pillars of Christianity in the 20th century. He started and launched and expanded campus crusade for Christ. One of the godliest men, uh, Elizabeth Dole said about Bill Bright, to know Bill Bright was to know God better. That in a world that was crazy, Bill Bright let me know God reigned. That's what somebody said. Wouldn't that be amazing to have that said about your life? Well, Bill Bright was diagnosed with, I don't remember exactly what it was. I read his autobiography as he was dying and that he wrote while he's dying. And he's he's dying of this disease, and whatever the disease was, they tell Bill Bright, they said, hey, really bad news, you're going to die by suffocation. And that happens occasionally. It's like, that's how you're going to die. And Bill Bright, and I think he meant this, Bill Bright's response was, wow, I'm going to get to die the same way Jesus Christ did. And I'm actually, on the cross, you die by suffocation. And he said, I'm going to know my Savior more deeply because I'm going to suffer and die like he did. And maybe if you're like me, you're like, wow, that, that, he knows Christ in ways and wants to know Christ in ways that I don't. I'm not that mature. But It'd probably be similar if you, if you met two people and they both went through cancer. There would, be a, there would be a knowing of one another. Oh, I remember what it's like to go through the chemotherapy. Oh, I know what it's like to be in a hotel by myself. I know what it's like to have the doctor come in and give that diagnosis. I know what that's like. So, so that, that's the whole idea, that when, we, when, we, when somebody betrays you, You go, ah, Jesus Christ was betrayed. When somebody falsely accuses you and says all kinds of evil against you, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, then you go, they did the same thing to Jesus Christ. There's a third thing. The third thing he wants you to know is that you cannot control what people say, but you can choose to not be ashamed. You cannot control what people say, but you can choose to not be ashamed. I want you to look at Verse 14. If you are insulted, and I said it earlier, but not every Christian will be verbally attacked, or sorry, physically attacked. Every Christian will be verbally attacked if you're faithful. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, that must mean that blessed doesn't mean life goes well for me. Blessed means something like I'm highly favored by God. He's allowing me to have this experience. Blessed also means I'm heavenly rewarded. Highly favored and heavenly rewarded would be a good definition of what it means to be blessed. He says, blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What Peter's doing here is he's honoring the power of words. Words are very powerful. I don't know if you, ever you grew up, I don't know if you ever heard this. When I grew up, my parents told me, and I love my parents, but they told me, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Well, whoever came up with that is an idiot, right? <laughs> we all know that. It's like, you know, you, you get it as a teenager, and you're like, man, that really hurts. Or even much younger. And you, you go, that's, words can be incredibly powerful. I remember, I, I liked this one girl in fifth grade. I really did. I really thought she was cute. And, um, and, and I can remember, still, I can remember when she came up one day with her, female friend, her girlfriend, or whatever. And they started to make fun of me and told me I looked like Arthur from those books. You ever see those, the, the Arthur, the, right? And, and because of how little my eyes were, okay? I'm, I'm getting over it, okay? No, But, but you know, right? it's like, I'm okay, I really am. Uh, I just go like this every night for a few hours. Um, no, but, you know, so it's like, but I can remember being in fifth grade, and that was something personal, and you just like, you know, I obviously, I, I when I thought to myself during preparation, has someone said anything? And then I'm like, Dessa in fifth grade said this to me. Um, but but, but, you know, and, and, but then sometimes you suffer specifically for Christ. You know, so I, I was a brand new Christian at Elon, and I remember I was at Elon, I was a brand new Christian. I was trying to be faithful to Christ. I was living in a dorm with a bunch of non-Christian guys, and they liked me. They picked on me because I was a Christian and stuff. But I remember one time I come into my dorm room, and um, my, this is back before the iPhone, so we had something called a landline phone in my room. And, uh, and on that landline phone, there was this thing back in the days called an answering machine, and that was on there too. And so I go on in there, and I have a message on my answering machine. And I never had it. Any, my mom might have left me a message, but I never have a message on my answering machine. I'm like, this is interesting. Ding! I hit it. It's my buddy. And he gets on there, and he goes, he has this deep voice. He's you know, faking the voice, and he goes, Kyle, it's God. <laughs> back off. <laughs> he goes, you're scaring me. And, and he just, and he went on just for a little bit, just about, you know, he was picking on me for trying to follow God, and he, he you know, and, and you just, that kind of stuff, it's it's kind of funny, but you're like, okay, how, do, then you start thinking, oh, well, this is how they view me. Interesting. Or then there's more serious versions. I remember I was at Duke, and I don't think I've told this story, but when I was at Duke, I ended up sharing the gospel with these three, it was two or three freshmen Duke um, students, and they seemed really interested. Uh, I was drawn out the gospel through a bridge diagram. And one of the guys afterwards says, hey, thanks. Um, Can I get your phone number? Let's get together. I thought, this is awesome. So I give my phone number and I don't can't remember. A couple days later, we get together for a cup of coffee and I'm excited. And I go and I sit down with him, and I'm like, so what did you, I mean, what kind of questions do you have about repentance and faith and Christ? And he said, that's not why I want to get together with you. I was like, oh no. He's like, I want to get together with you to tell you I hate what you're doing on this campus. And I'm like, did we have to have a meeting about this? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't you just told me this as we were leaving the other day? Did you have to sit me down? You know, and I'm looking at this guy, I'm thinking you're 10 years younger than me and you're just telling me, you're just telling me off. And he spent about, I don't have time, but he spent about 10 minutes just telling me why he thought Christianity was wrong, why he thought evangelism was wrong, why he thought talking to freshmen was wrong. So I remember I, w- I left there and I was shaking. You know, and I called my pastor, you know, at the time, and, Andy, hey, you know, how, you know, this is what happened, and Andy encouraged me, and, but but again, it's those moments where you're like, this happens, and, and, and you have to understand that today, people are going to say a lot of things about Christians. Let me tell you, they're going to say you're boring. That's not that insulting, except that you don't want to be boring, right? Like, I don't want to be boring. You know, you're sexually oppressive. You're sexually repressed. Even though the, you know, even though the Bible has an entire book on the celebration of sexuality that... Jewish boys weren't allowed to read until they were 13 years old, but people don't know that. Well, they'll call you intolerant. They'll call you unloving. They'll call you small-minded. Well, what's happening is Christianity is losing and has been losing. I'm not a, I'm not a cultural analysis guy. I'm not a great history guy, but, but here's what we all do know. Christianity is losing its whatever cultural influence it had. You may not know this. 150 years ago, if you wanted to get a loan for a mortgage, you had to show them your church membership. Well, we don't live in that world anymore, right? I, I've thought before, man, if we had college students, they may not put their members of our church on a resume or, or on an application. And I, and I don't blame them because it might work against them. That, that's kind of the culture, that's kind of the world that we're beginning to live in. And, and I think sometimes we think that, man, if we just if just the right person, if the right celebrity would come to faith in Christ, Christianity would be cool. You know, if the right politician, if the right actor... If somebody in Hollywood other than Jim Caviezel was a Christian, okay, you know I mean? I mean, you know, if Taylor Swift and John Mayer came to Christ and wrote songs about it, okay, I've prayed that prayer, okay? Um, You know, but the truth is, and this is important, that Christianity will never be cool, but it will always be relevant, and I'll explain the difference, that Christianity will never be cool. Cool is like trendy, cool is like, well, and here's the thing, self-denial never will be cool. Telling you to repent of your sins and to stop being so narcissistic, and that the world does not revolve around you, and that you're your own greatest problem, will never be cool. That there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that will never be cool. That there's a final judgment, that there's heaven and that there's hell, that will never be cool. But, and here's the encouragement, and I, I I believe this with all my heart, it will be relevant. What, it's not relevant in the cheesy way that churches try to sometimes do. Hey, we're doing a series on the iPhone 10. Come out and see that. It's like that is the goofiest thing I've ever heard. It's, it's not that we make the gospel relevant; we show the relevancy of the gospel. There was um, I remember one time there was a, a lady in our church, and she brought her sister to um, to to visit, and her sister's not a Christian. She's been praying for her sister. And um, her sister comes, and I guess it was while we were in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, or so, it was Genesis 3, it was in Genesis 3, and I guess her sister had said something about mocking, you know, how we're we're a people that are, you know, talking about old things, and this is irrelevant, but she said about halfway through my message on Genesis 3, which is dealing with sin and temptation and Satan, and how all sin works, that she looked over at her in the middle of my sermon and goes, how is this so relevant to my life? It's like of course it's relevant to your life. There is nothing more relevant than dealing with your sinful nature. There's nothing more relevant than talking about God and how you're made in his image but fallen and broken. There's nothing more relevant than talking about where you're gonna spend eternity. It doesn't get any more relevant than that. And so though Christianity will never be cool, it'll never be hip, it'll never be trendy, True Christianity, it will always be relevant. And that's why he says at the end, don't be ashamed. Verse 16, don't be ashamed. You might be ashamed of your sin. You might be ashamed of your past. You might be ashamed of your lack of courage, but don't be ashamed of Christ. That's the big idea there. And then finally, the fourth thing he says is you cannot stop suffering from happening to you, but you don't need to suffer alone. You cannot stop suffering from happening to you. That's kind of a restating of the first point. But you don't need to suffer alone. He's going to end where Peter often ends, which is a call to community, which is a call that, it's this whole idea, you probably heard this before, it's not a biblical proverb, but it's just a proverb of life, Um, that friendship makes the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. You need people to bear the burdens in your life. Verse 17, For it is time, for judgment, in this context, it's not the punishing judgment of God, it's the purifying judgment of God on the church. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. What he's saying here is what you need to know when you're going through suffering is that you have a church family. The church is a family to walk through the fire with. What this means is the church is not an event, the church is not a building. The church is not the place you drop your kids off for free childcare while you sing songs and listen to sermons. The church is not a place to uh, build business relationships. The church is not a place to do religious activities. The church is a place to have a spiritual family that's going to care for one another and walk with one another through sin and suffering. This is why the number one way the church is talked about when relating to itself is as brothers and sisters or as a family in Christ. And so he says, I want you to understand that as you suffer, you suffer together. In fact, here's the other thing. Jesus Christ suffers with you. So what's interesting, and I won't go here now, but if you go to, you might want to write this down and go do this with your community group, but if you go to Acts chapter 9, that's where Paul, Saul becomes Paul, and he's, he's riding on his horse, and, and, and Jesus Christ confronts him and converts him, and what, what Jesus Christ says, if you remember what he says to him, he goes, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Well, was Paul Paul persecuting Jesus? No, not necessarily not directly. He was persecuting Christians. But Jesus so connects himself with the church that to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. And so he goes on and he says, and if it begins with us, this is verse 17, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's using rhetorical questions. In other words, he's not giving you the answer because the answer is so obvious and in this case, so terrible. If Christians have to go through a judgment, what will the world have to go through? And then look at verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, saved with difficulty, it took the blood of the Son of God. It took 33 years of God's life to live a perfect life to bear the wrath of God, to overcome Satan, sin, and death. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then he ends with a summary of what we should do when we suffer. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do two things, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He's saying that here's what you need to do. It's an oversimplification, but it's helpful when you don't know, when all the suffering that's going to, you don't know all the suffering, I don't know all the suffering that's going to come into our life. But he says, here's what I want you to do two things. I want you to fully depend on God, and I want you to continue to do good. What happens when you have financial loss? What happens when you get a diagnosis that you don't like? What happens when there's relational difficulty and strife? What happens when you lose somebody you love? He's like, I want you to continue, it's not easy. I want you to continue to depend on God, that's to transfer trust from yourself and your situation to your savior. I want you to depend on God, and then he says, I want you to continue to do good. See, what's interesting is, as the church loses cultural influence, we've seen this, this is one of the beautiful things about being on 2000 years of church history, I can, t- I can tell you what's going to happen. From a church history perspective, here's what's happening, because it's what happens every time, it's a cycle. As the church loses cultural influence, they are forced to find their identity no longer in anything else except for Christ. When you can't find your identity in your job anymore, when you can't find your identity in some kind of status in your culture anymore, what it makes, this is so powerful, what it makes you do is it makes you fully find your identity in Christ. Guess what happens when you fully find your identity in Christ? More power is unlocked in your life. You understand the grace of God. You understand the forgiveness of God. You understand the power of Christ. And guess what happens when your identity is fully in Christ? Christ you're able to move out into the world and have an influence on the world. Because here's the truth, there's a lot of people in our city who are suffering. And the great message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ suffered for you, and that Jesus Christ suffers with you, and that the resurrection says that one day God will make all things right. And that's the message that we wanna take to our city. Let's pray. Lord, we know that suffering is coming. You're very clear in your word that suffering is not a punishment, but a promise. That life is hard, that difficulties are going to come, that tests and trials and tragedies, unfortunately, are part of our lives. Lord, I pray that wherever, I don't know what everybody's going through in this room, but that wherever we are, we would depend on you. We we would entrust ourselves to, as it says there, a faithful creator. Lord, you created us, you designed us You know our pain points. You know what bothers us. You know what can hurt us. You know how fragile and finite we are. Lord, let us be a church that continues to do good. That the way that people will see that we're truly Christians is not how we respond when things go well, but more often how we respond as things fall apart. Lord, let us do that as individuals. Let us do that as families. And let us do that as a church. In your name we pray. Amen.